It's Preachers on Preaching, frank conversations between two preachers brought to you by the Christian Century Magazine. And now, your host, Matt Fitzgerald. Support for Preachers on Preaching comes from Candler School of Theology at Emory University, now offering an online Doctor of Ministry degree for experienced ministers who want to strengthen the connection between theology and practice. Study with Candler's renowned faculty in one of two tracks, Biblical Interpretation and Proclamation, or Church Leadership and Community Witness. Scholarships are available and details can be found at candler.emory.edu forward slash preaching. This week I interview Roger Nelson. Roger is the senior pastor of the Hope Christian Reformed Church in Oak Forest, Illinois. He's a fascinating preacher and a really interesting man, and he shares in this conversation a very emotional story of an intense personal loss that he went through. During this season of Lent, if you've suffered loss or if you're contemplating the cross and know that his story will touch your heart and that you'll enjoy this interview, he's a very funny guy. Here he is, Roger Nelson. So you told me, Roger, that you're a, uh, a manuscript preacher. And you're a really good writer. I've read several of your sermons. I want to actually read back to you a paragraph from a recent one. I think this is just from maybe last week. Um, you say this, I believe there's a spiritual reality beyond behind encroaching on and part of this present reality. I believe that there are those thin places in life where there is a luminous inbreaking. And while they don't happen on our timetable, sometimes we are given those moments of clarity. But in their absence... I find myself tethered to scripture as a way to understand reality. Can you expound on that a little bit? Yeah, I wrote that. Uh, and my therapist this morning, on a, I talked to a therapist uh, by phone. He's, we've been dear friends for a long time, and he, he said, that was a really good sentence. He said, I've gone back to that a couple times. Um, I don't have a very clear sense or experience of God's presence. A lot of what um, people claim, what I observe others experience, what it seems like others are experiencing aren't, just aren't my experience. So... In terms um, of spiritual yeah, in terms phenomenon of some, and yeah, experiences? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some sense of, um, for me, it any sense of sort of God's presence has been uh, when I'm running, when I'm um, um, at a rock show, uh, at a Springsteen concert, um, there's just and and so in the absence of those, because I just it doesn't happen very often that I'm that I, I can claim certainty about God. I just feel tethered to Scripture in a way that I can't unhook myself, even when I've tried. Um, because I need to hear another voice than my own, and I and I need to be part of a of something deeper and um, older than me and my current angst. <laughs> so it's not tethered is an interesting adjective. It's a verb. It's not that you ha- that you go searching that you dive into, um, but rather it has a hold on you. 
Yeah. Um, and part of that is professionally. Part of it is that I'm required. Um, I'm, I'm, I need to go back to that text week in and week out and, um, and, and I got to get it in me and, and, and listen to it and write out of it and help unfold it for other people. When did that happen to you? Like, like is, is, is the, the tie that you have to scripture, has that been tightened over the years? Was it something um, that was instilled in you as a kid? Um, so uh, I listened to some of these other podcasts. One of those with, was, was with Jim Wallace. Yeah. Jim Wallace was Plymouth Brethren. My folks grew up in the same tiny Plymouth Brethren chapel that Jim Wallace comes from in Detroit, uh, Dunning Park. So I grew up in a family that had this high, high sense of personal piety and, um, and connection to Scripture. So when I was a kid and sneaking into the house at night in trouble, you know, just my father would be sitting, legs crossed, finger to his face, reading scripture. And it was a life-giving source in his, in his life. Um, so my father eventually needs a larger um, framework, needs a larger intellectual framework. And he becomes, he's a history professor, uh, University of Michigan, Michigan State, and we find these reformed churches that give him a larger theol- a larger intellectual framework for his faith. But he's on this lifelong journey of trying to make sense of scripture and the quest the big the big there was never questions that that were out of bounds or or were too big. Um so your family moved from the Plymouth Brethren to the, to the, Reform, the Reformed Church. Yeah, Univers- So I grew up in these university Reformed churches that were um, two or three faculty families and all college students. Uh, that was normative for me until in high school. That's uh, probably different from different the from, stereotype that a lot of people carry yeah. around in their head of what a Michigan Reformed church is going to yeah. look like. Yep, yep. It was all college kids, and this is you know. Um, late 60s and 70s, so InterVarsity, um, you know, this um, people trying to find answers and Jesus people. And, uh, yeah. There's, I don't know if you've read the, the latest book of Marilyn Robinson essays, but she has a bit in there where she's, you know, in weighing in against the UCC and and the Presbyterian Church as having become and she's you know she's a Congregationalist but having she uses this great put down um, this what does she say something like an uncoerced volunteered like just letting go of our theological heritage um, so that she says you know she spent decades in the liberal Protestant Church and didn't realize she was a Calvinist um, and never heard about him. Was there, in the Reformed churches that you grew up in, was there a, a sense of being tied closely to Calvin, to that theological heritage? No, not, not that I was aware of. What I was aware of, and that's why I went down this path, was what I was aware of was this sort of centrality of Scripture and people trying to people wrestling with what that lens meant as a way to understand the world. And while it didn't, 
while I put I couldn't have pushed against it harder as a kid and as a young adult, even through seminary, even through work in uh, so. But at one point, uh, as a I don't know a late thirties probably, I was working in a church as a youth pastor, and I pr- I began to preach with some regularity there. Um, and I'd already been doing a lot of speaking, but I started to preach and write, write sermons. And this is in this Schenectady Reformed, First Reformed Church of Schenectady. And on a Saturday afternoon, while working on a sermon, trying to hammer out a manuscript, it's a painful, it's a painful, ugly process, uh, especially with ADD. Um, I stumbled across a phrase in Isaiah. I don't remember what it was. But I remember this sort of um, epiphany of I'd never seen that phrase. It was so beautiful, and it was so, um, it opened up this window, and I thought I could dig around in this for the rest of my life. Mm. Just in that one phrase. In Scripture. Yeah, yeah. And never run out of material. (laughs) Never run out of material. And, Isn't that the truth? Yeah, and it's the truth. And I've so it was part of a process of me moving towards preaching. And and so I've been at it now for you know sort of every Sunday for thirteen fourteen years, and and that sense of wonder and um so so much rich soil to dig around in hasn't gone away. Usually I'm wrestling with it, pushing back against it, stuck with it, but there is always, almost always something that makes me tilt my head like a dog that's hearing a whistle and, and, and th- help me think about things in a way that I... I I think I need. That's why the tethering sense. Why I I uh, I need I need to be pulled back to that. And then I think my responsibility is to invite people into that. To invite people into that wonder, and to unfold that text in a way that engages them in their life. Because I got nothing to I got nothing to say. So you don't walk around with a sense then of heaven and earth are collapsed into one another and you can <laughs> look at a rock and see the presence of God. Um, in that relationship you have with Scripture, has then your own sense of God become, I don't know, more clear, more intimate, more... Um, okay, and what well, you I, said I, resonates with me very much. I mean, I don't think of, I, you know, people are saying this, but... I'm religious, not spiritual. Um, I I mean, I really don't feel, and I think sometimes people can can make assumptions, especially as sort of spirituality becomes this assumed category that religious people are in. Um, I think people can make assumptions about preachers that somehow you or I or any other preacher, and some do, but have this sort of innate sense of the holy. Um, for me, and I resonate very much with what you're saying, for me, I don't really at all. In fact, that's one of the reasons that I'm a preacher. I long for it. I feel the absence, and I feel that same thing through the discipline of preaching. 
it's not that God starts to feel closer. In some ways, God feels more grand and more, therefore more distant, but God feels more real yeah. um, through that discipline. Yeah. So I don't know where I fit. Like, I know what I'm not. And so lately I've been thinking about, okay, I'm clearly not that. <laughs> What's that? Um, evangelical. Uh, conservative. What, what, what gets labeled in culture as Christian. Um, a lot of, uh, so does that make it, you an outlier in your denomination? Makes me an outlier in my denomination. So the Calvin, the Christian I, Reformed Church folks would think of themselves as evangelical. Yes. Okay. Um, yes. Um, and yet, when I'm with my uh, liberal uh, UCC Episcopalian, I love these people. But I'm the conservative in the mix with them, in part because I can't untether myself from Scripture. So these central ideas, incarnation, and if the incarnation, then resurrection. I need those. And I need those to be true in some way. And writing to preach helps keep me tethered to that. I don't know much beyond that, and it's a, it's a little bit of a, um, um, nat, what's, who's the tattooed one? You know, oh. she's all the rage. Nadia Boltz-Weber? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. She has a line in something recently about, as a leader, she's just like the first one in. <laughs> Sometimes I think with preaching, there's a lot of folks that have a million questions and doubts and struggles. And in the preaching, all I'm saying is, look, I'm the first one in here. I'm forced to say this. But I'm just, I'm, uh, so I'm going to say it. Let's not talk about it on Monday. <laughs> but right now, in this preaching moment, this is the best I can say. Mm-hmm. And, and hope. And really want it to be true. I think that's a great way to look at it, to really want it to be true. There's this classic Lutheran understanding that it doesn't, the efficacy of a sermon is not ride on the faith of the preacher. Right. 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 Um, I, I think that, um, that for preaching, to be in touch with our own sense of, of doubt, of, um, of disbelief, of, you know, the spiritual life waxes and wanes, right? Um, even, you know, it's funny, I was talking to somebody recently about authenticity in the pulpit, um, and he was pushing for that. And, I, you know, I, at some level, and I asked him, I said, well, sometimes you're authentically bored when you're preaching, you know what I mean? Or yeah. authentically tired yeah. of the task. Yeah. Um, so there is that sort of, it's not just performance like like a theatrical performance, there's also the way in which we're performing what it looks like to be... Yeah. Um, subservient yeah. to the word, right? Uh, yeah. Even though we don't always feel that way yeah. on a given Sunday. Yeah. And uh, the church that I serve, which is a really good fit, is um, full of um, young adults, and, and uh, I mean, we got really rich intergenerational life, but they tend to be, um, the expectation is that there will be some intellectual honesty in the in the preaching process. Are you in the pulpit most Sundays? Yes. It's just me. I mean, we have a bunch of associate pastors who are 
chaplains and therapists and you know college professors and those you know who are ordained but, but yeah it's just me is preaching week in and week out you said earlier that that process of producing a manuscript is a I don't know did you yeah, say an ugly process yeah, it's ugly what does that look like for you um so I'm a lectionary preacher because I I really I don't have any I don't have anything I don't have anything else to say so I really need a text um, I look at that text. So I set the preaching calendar during the school year, during the summer. Okay, I'm going to try to follow these paths through the lectionary during the year. And I got to do it in the summer to get it to the choir director so that he's picking anthems. So there's some broad strokes that are set out in the summer. When September comes, um, and now this is the now we're starting this look hey the lectionary runs 4 weeks 5 weeks through Ephesians and these are the themes that I so I don't look at that I write liturgy using those texts on Tuesday morning and I look at the text and I start fretting and worrying and thinking and wondering and reading and studying and I and I'm sitting with it um in a whole bunch of different ways. It's just hanging there. Um, and I probably don't start to write until Friday or Saturday because once I start writing, it's never going to be done anyways, so why not put it off? <laughs> um, and then I write typically on a Saturday on and off all day, all night go to bed with it undone. I'll go for a run or a ride on Saturday afternoon. And a lot of times things open up or get reconfigured in that act of running or riding. And then work again on Saturday night. And seriously, for a guy with ADD, if there's one click of the button and you can see what's going on, you know, in the Bulls game, or I'll stop in the middle of a sentence. It just, it's ridiculous. Um, the computer is not your friend. Not my friend, except it's the only way I know how to write uh, because I can. Because I think about, I think sentences matter. I think words matter. I think picking phrases that have a lyrical quality that 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 work out. All, I don't trust what I'm going to say in the moment because. Um, the spirit is moving. The spirit that's usually moving in me is not one that people need to hear. I want to come back to that, but I want to... I want to. So I write all the way up until 9.45 on Saturday, on Sunday morning. Sunday morning. So yeah. I go, I come, it's, it's probably not done. It's not done until 9.45. I hit print. I make copies for some folks that are hard of hearing. And I, I drop it in the pulpit. And then... Um, I go up and it's in me, but I still stick pretty close to those words. The the image I had in mind when you were describing this is of a as of a, a tea kettle on the stove, kind of building and yeah. building and building and then blowing the whistle. Yeah. You know, yeah. um, it, it does sound like an agonizing process. It is. It yeah. And I and it's it's physical in that I, you know, so at at Western Seminary. There's been a generation of preachers that have been raised up who, who memorize Scripture, and they're great 
reciters of, yeah, I can't even remember the benediction from one week to the next. But during the week, I know I need to get it. I, it has to come out of me. It's got to get in me and come out. of. There's a physical quality to it. And I've also learned to trust the text, trust the text, whatever, no matter how uncomfortable, sideways it feels, offensive, bizarre, baffling, trust the text. Because it'd be easy to run off on some other tangent. But even what the church has said throughout the ages, I still feel beholden to sort of helping people come into that. There's a movement within my tradition, within the mainline at least, to within liberal Protestantism, that I think in, in some ways it, it, we're sort of beating up on ourselves, saying it really, I mean, I haven't heard it put this explicitly, but but I hear it sort of on the wind, which is, look, manuscript preaching is an inferior way to preach, that somehow it's a distancing, it's just not as authentic, it's not as lively, it's not as real. Um, when I was reading your sermons, I was struck by the, the, the artistry of language that's in them. And at the same time that I was reading them, I was helping one of our kids, my own family's kids, um, write an essay for school, one of the seventh grader, one of the first times he's ever had to do this. And I found myself saying to him, look, you don't know what you think until you write it down. Like, this is how you, it's not that you're showing your teacher that you understand, you're actually coming into the act of understanding while you labor over this. That went, <laughs> it's like a Charlie Brown trombone in his ear, but um but I found myself thinking, I, I too, I too write very carefully out my sermons. I write them out very carefully, and and um, even though lately I've been kind of wondering why do I do that, I've been doing this for 15 years. I really, you know, I'm not going to really learn any new, um, I don't think, sort of doctrinal conviction that I don't already have. I, the basic ideas I find myself coming back to. Yeah. So why? Why am I not courageous enough or whatever to unleash myself in the pulpit? But, but I think for me, what I'm reminded of is I'm writing. It's like my own kid writing that essay. I don't really know what I right. think until I sit down and write it out. Right. Maybe that's because I've been doing it for so long. Right. But but I also need. Again, I don't trust what is going to happen. My need to be liked. My need to be the funny guy. Um, my, uh, so I wrote an, a sermon a couple weeks ago. I had a paragraph about sort of other Christians who would see things in this way. And when I wrote it, it probably served some purpose in the process. But by the time Sunday morning came, that thing was gone. Because it, what good did it do this congregation or any, it just to hear no, you beaten up on another it did group no of good. Yeah, it it just didn't serve any purpose. It was a stronger sermon because that was out of there, and I don't think I get there if I just have an outline and I got some ideas and I've sort of thought this through. But I'm going to count on the spontaneity of the moment and the. I um. Yeah. Karl Barth says that through Scripture, God is speaking to us, and that, you know, he, he's got this wonderful sort of tiered process. So what does he say? Scripture is authentic revelation. 
Scripture is authentic witness to the revelation of God. And he then says, so God is speaking in that way and doesn't want us just to listen, but wants to change us, that that's God's intent. Um, Have you felt yourself changed by the discipline of, of going back to the text week in, week out for these past 13 years? Yeah, that's, um, I've been thinking about that a lot lately. Um, so uh, part of the process of me moving towards preaching was I was in the D-Min program at Princeton. And, um, and I was kind of a youth guy, and I was thinking about youth and culture and Christ and how music and contemporary culture serves as liturgy in people's lives. And I wanted to kind of think and write about that. And, and, um, and it was time to do the, 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 the thesis. And I was really frustrated with the program. And I went in to see this professor to say, look, I don't know what to do here. I'm fr-. And the guy closes the door and uh, it's this it smelled like apple pipe smoke, um, you know, pushes books aside from someplace for me to sit down. Um, and he says, um, yeah, you don't, you don't need this degree. Doesn't mean anything in your polity. This is, you know, this, we know this program is all left up and, uh, you don't need this at all. And he looks at me and says, but you're an arty guy. You need to plant yourself in a congregation and preach for 20 years and see what difference it makes. I was blown away. He had no idea that I was wrestling with that change in my life. Didn't know me well enough to know that. And I walked out of there on this beautiful spring day in Princeton, New Jersey. Um, Yeah, does God speak through that? I hope so. I'm 13, 14 years into it, but but, but the question of, what difference does it make? How am I changed? How are people changed? Um, how are we sustained? I don't know that changing maybe, but sustained is something that I've thought about lately, um, that people are in deep in their lives. And, um, and preaching and honesty and preaching and the community that they're gathered with, I know that it sustains them in ways. And, and that to me, and maybe it sustains me, and, and that feels, feels um, sometimes feels like enough. So rather, that's a, that's a beautiful thought, rather than saving the world, transforming a group of individuals, perhaps helping people keep their heads above water, keeping our own heads above yeah. water. Yeah, we yeah. take that for granted, I think. Yeah. Um, it's so hard in ministry, I find, to measure our impact, to yeah. measure effectiveness. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know even if we should, yeah. but that's a really interesting way yeah. to think about it. And I, I, Look, I think there are all sorts of different churches for all sorts of different people, and I know that what we do at Hope helps people live and mark their lives, and they can do it together. We can marry and bury, and that's important, and it gives framework and sustenance and 
Um, and that's not a bad way to spend a life if you can help people with that. Um, um, so do you feel, do you experience something similar when you're reading non-biblical literature, a good novel, the newspaper, a poem? Are you, do you find, are you a reader in that, in that sense? Like, are you going deep with what you're reading in general? Yeah. Um, I'm a reader, um, read all sorts of stuff. Um, novels, um, um, mysteries, um, sports stuff, biographies, sports biographies. Um, lyrics and music. Um, uh, I skim the recent theological stuff. It, 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 ugh, but, but I feel like I should know it, and so I skim a lot of that stuff. Um, but there's always lyrics in my head. And of songs, of songs, particular artists, or yeah, um, you mentioned Springsteen. Earlier. Yeah, Springsteen, uh, Wilco, uh, Jason Isbell. Um, um, Isn't that last Jason Isbell record incredible? It, um, there's a line in, in there's a line um, in one of those songs. You thought God was an architect. Yeah. That, that's, right. I, yeah. Let me try to remember it. You thought yeah. God was an architect. Now you know. He's yeah, more, he's, he's more like bomb. a pipe bomb, ready to pipe, blow everything to you blow. built that was just yeah. for show. What yeah. a beautiful yeah. lyric that is! Yeah. Um, that's yeah. great. Do you ever listen to uh, the Hold Steady? That- I I do. Uh, I've got a um, it's just the classic uh, bar band energy front. Um, that's really I'd love to see them live, and it's because I think that's what they you know. And I, and I, the lyrics are great too, like right. like really rich theological content. The um, and that stuff that that stuff um, speaks to me, works for me. Um, so and, you do you feel? And at fifty six, I'm not apologizing for it anymore, and I'm not apologizing that um, that my experience of God is what it is. I lived for a long time feeling it wasn't enough, and it was somehow my fault. What wasn't enough? Spirituality, confidence, faith—that that I didn't—that you didn't have enough that I of didn't, those things. Yeah, that I didn't have. Yeah, um, and I'm I'm sort of okay with you know what um, this is what has sustained me, and um, and that's okay. Well, certainly, God is free to speak to you through those lyrics. <laughs> Any damn right? way he feels. Right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you mentioned at the start of our interview this beautiful image of your father, you coming home as a teenager, yeah. <laughs> and your dad sitting up late at night. Yeah, I thought you were going to say waiting for you because you were in trouble. Yeah, but... <laughs> usually, but but he was always reading. But he was reading, and always re- always reading, and reading scripture. You said uh, oftentimes, oftentimes scripture, but always reading. Did he live to see you become a pastor? Was that uh, not so much? Mm. Um, so we struggle. A lot. Um, he's a he's a college professor who's a thinker and a reader, and I'm a, um, um, I'm trying to I'm trying to bust out. Um, listen to the Springsteen from you know late seventies, early eighties, "Darkness on the Edge of Town," "Born to Run." Um, those things resonate real deeply. So you were pushing against not pushing only against, the church, but also that academic. Yeah, yeah, yep, and and my father, um, and um, 
and and yet I can't seem to shake uh, the tug towards um, faith and and uh, social justice and um, and so eventually I as a college kid I serve an internship in Roseland in the south side of Chicago Roseland Christian Ministry Center 109th in Michigan and I find a home and a calling in a black congregation in the heart of the city and I am as alive and in love and with everything as I've ever been and meet a pastor who becomes a mentor and a hero and um, and so I've I start to steer towards um, seminary or law school I'm either going to be an urban pastor or an urban lawyer and, um, and my buddies end up going to seminary and I end up going to seminary, but I don't, I don't fit very well. I'm, I'm, um, I work in an, in a outfitter shop. Um, I don't work in a church. Um, uh, I, there's a whole bunch of other, you know, there's just a lot of stuff going on. And, uh, and then early on, a, a, a professor says, look, uh, we, if you're going to survive, we got to get you back to Chicago. Will you do SCOOP, Seminary Consortium for Urban Pastoral Education? So I come back early back to Chicago in SCOOP in seminary, and uh, I land at Rosen Christian Ministry Center again, and it's back home, and I'm going to SCOOP, and it's a, re- it's a really good fit. And this is all getting to my dad. Um, and so I, I'm sort of on this trajectory to be an urban pastor. And then I get engaged, and so my father, who's a college professor, and my mom uh, need to meet and spend some time with Sandy, who's now my wife. Uh, We meet in Chicago for the weekend. Um, We go to Roseland for church on a beautiful spring day, and um, and it's a rich, wonderful um, morning. Um, I have some sense of my dad's blessing and encouragement and presence and joy in all of that um, and what happened in that service. And in fact, he says to Reverend Tony um, on the way out, the pastor there, um, I feel so refreshed. Uh, We go into the parking lot. Um, This is in the mid-80s. It's at the height of the crack epidemic. and we are uh, held up at gunpoint by um, a crack addict who had just tried to hold up um, a liquor store um, a couple blocks away. He was cutting through the alley as we were going into the parking lot. We crossed paths. Uh, He forced us into the car. Um, he, He was sort of crouched down beside the driver's door, hidden behind the driver's door with the gun in my dad's side or up in my neck uh, because I was sitting directly behind my dad and um, I was the only one who talked uh, through this, what ended up being about 12, 15 minutes of being held at bay um, and being robbed um, by this guy um, in the church parking lot. And then eventually with no provocation, with no... Uh, he shot my dad point blank in the side, mm-hmm. um, and my dad slumped into my mom's lap, and um, and 
yeah, died in the parking lot there. Um, so I was in, uh, I was in, I was a seminary for four years. One of those years was scoop. So I was in my third year. I was back at Western that time. Um, I'm telling you, seminary, not the best place to go back to after your dad's been murdered. Um, but I ended up um, finishing, you know, another year of seminary. Got married a couple months after that, finished seminary, and then tried to figure out, okay, where do I go now? Um, Did you feel like you had to integrate that? Was there pressure to integrate that experience into your faith when you got back to seminary? Was there like, like when you said it wasn't a good place yeah, to go back to. Yeah, you know, there's to. a lot of folks that had things that they thought they needed to tell me. Um, but there was also, um, in particular, two professors that both had lost sons who, who got the pain, who got that it just didn't fit. Um, didn't fit anything. Uh, one of those is a, was a was a New Testament professor, and I wasn't. A, I, I nothing stood out about me as a seminary. I was in the. I had great friends, and 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 in my dad's murder, these circle of guys were. I, to this day, are are dearly loved by me. Um. But so I, I wasn't any you know, no special kind of student or anything. I, um, always wrestling with shit. So. But Jim Cook, who's one of these guys who, who had lost a son and who was really a, a fine, fine professor, he told me at some point when I got back after my dad was killed that if, that if God himself had stood in front of him and written down on a piece of paper uh, why the reason for, for his son's death, that he would crumple it up and throw it back in God's face and say there's not reason enough. Um, that was helpful <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> because uh, there, there's just never, throw yeah. away any attempt to make just throw meaning away out any of attempt this. of making meaning out of it. Um, to this day, um, there's not reason enough, um, and this is thirty. This is thirty years ago. So there's not meaning to be found in it. Um, you know, am, am I a better pastor uh, because of it? Uh, do I get the brokenness of the world better um do i know deep sorrow a sense of the fallenness and depravity of the world yeah probably not reason enough <laughs> not reason enough for you'd the, rather you know, you'd rather be ignorant of yeah, all yeah, those exactly. things and and quite frankly i probably knew it in some ways already um because um because my experience with it as the victim of gun violence. And by the way, in, in the mid-80s, there's 900 people a year getting murdered. Um, in, Chica in, in Chicago. In Chicago. In Chicago. 900 people a year during the height of the crack epidemic in the 80s. We stood out because we were white. Um, and, and, and so that very day, I remember feeling like I'm stepping into a pool of the victims of gun violence. Um, and... And it's, and it's, the, and that pool is full of black brothers and sisters. Um, it's about half of that now 
in Chicago, about 450. Those numbers have been, it's been more like that now. Um, um, we now just have cell phone images of it. Um, but you've pushed back against that well-meaning, perhaps, instruction or impulse to, to take that tragedy and use it right to 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 wring meaning from it in yeah in i don't and, i i don't um i don't i don't talk about it i don't preach about it i rarely tell i i don't um everybody's everybody's got a story um and everybody's got a story of brokenness and if they don't have one now they're going to get one and and mine is mine just happened at that point and um and and maybe it was unique because how many white college professors who are Christian pacifists get gunned down by a crack addict after church after church on a Sunday afternoon on a Sunday afternoon when they've just met their yeah. son's fiance yeah um but but even in that even in that day not only, I felt like I stepped into that pool but but my awareness my sensibility from that very first day was just deep sorrow for all of us it wasn't rage and anger at clarence hayes um who was the murderer it was it was deep sorrow even for him and for all this knot of a of addiction and poverty and 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 violence and um health care and joblessness and just all this and and vacant home it just it just felt like just deep sorrow for all of that, and we were we just participated in it in a and you felt a solidarity with other victims, yeah, was yeah. that something that you grew into, or was that I don't know it was there, it's still there, um but I don't um i've I have done some participation in um family victims of gun violence stuff but I also I just um, I, I, I don't I've not let it define it's I just don't wear it around yeah. it's just not that yeah. you know um, um, are there other and there's a part of me that, that sort of wants to protect there's a little bit of sort of wanting to protect it you see so many people sort of sell their stories as a way to be to be and and i you know what it it, it, it's it's um to protect it in terms of having your pain be your pain yeah your loss be your loss not a commodity yeah and it's very easy as a preacher to use personal to commodify personal experience yeah yeah Yeah. um well i'm sorry um that's i want to come back to the way in which you resisted making sense of your dad's death theologically. Yeah. The advice that that image that your professor gave you was really powerful. Um, and that lands with me. I lost my dad when I was a kid, um, 13. He died not, not violently died of cancer. Um, and I do think because as preachers, we are trying to make meaning that there is this huge push to take an experience, 
filter it through Christian doctrine somehow, and then come out with sense. Um, and I've certainly tried to do that and, and thought to myself, I probably never would have become a minister if my, had, if my father hadn't died at that age. And um, I like being a minister, you know? And so there's good to be found there, and there's meaning to be made out of that loss. But when, you, when I stop and look at Christianity, there is senselessness at the middle of it, right? Um, and so even, I like that, that, that thought that your professor had is great, because we, I mean, Christian theology can be seen in some level, atonement theory certainly, as an attempt to make sense out of a tragedy. Yeah. And maybe we ought just to let even the cross be a tragedy, yeah. instead of trying to figure out yeah. what we get out yeah. of it. Yeah, I, I think um, uh, God's entering in, God's solidarity with, God's participation, you know, just in, in that brokenness, in unjust death, in murder by the state, um, in alignment with uh, the poor and the tossed aside. That's all that I don't need it to, to therefore mean something else. That in itself, for me, has deep resonance. Um, and so the idea that God, I never sort of struggled with the notion that did God will this or not will. You know, for me, it was pretty, God was wept and was as broken in this as I saw my mom and as I was. Mm. And you uh, got that because of incarnational... Yeah, pro- yeah, yeah, be, right. I mean, I, I, yeah, because of, because of the Jesus? Um, because of the cross. Because of the cross, yeah. Um, or maybe not. But, but e- or maybe not. Even the image of Jesus weeping over the city. Mm. Um, mm. But the idea that somehow my dad was now saved and in heaven and, you know, that, that again, that stuff doesn't, doesn't mean that much to me. However, that the, um, the, the, the arc of the universe <laughs> is bent towards justice, and it's long, but that somehow this ends in God's shalom and that the very hand of God wipes away the last tear um, and there's no more death or mourning or crying of pain and the dwelling of God is with people. Um, that's important to me. Um, heaven schmeven, you know. <laughs> but that all of us, Clarence Hayes and his family included, participate in the restoration of the shalom that God intends. Um, That hope's important to me. Amen. I want that to be true. Roger, thank you so much. Yeah, you bet. What a delightful conversation and moving. Yeah, glad to be a part of it. Thanks. Many thanks for listening to the Christian Centuries Preachers on Preaching podcast. This episode was edited by Neil Ellingson with technical assistance from Kyle Hoker and Steve Thorngate. <laughs>